Well, I'm well. I'm very excited today to have our author Sean Murphy on, who wrote with Work Tribes. Sean, before we get started, uh, if you don't mind, give a little bit about your background in your consulting business. Yeah. So. I've been doing organizational behavior uh, related, org development related consulting, um, really around large whole scale um, transformation, whether it be technology uh, implementations or um, acquisitions, um, or also uh, just kind of culture related. Um, probably the, the biggest focus of, of the consulting work that I did was around um, in, in the government space and in healthcare. And so what we were brought in to do is oftentimes help, uh, you know, when something is broken, like bad blood between uh, departments that need to work together or, you know, from an acquisition, you know, helping employees integrate into a new business, a new culture. Uh, what we did is we designed, you know, a, a, a whole scale change plan that integrated not just the people implications, but also the implications that the business would have on performance, uh, also how technology would influence performance. So we really looked at changing an organization holistically rather than just very myopically focusing on you know, people or process or technology. We looked at all three. So why the name Work Tribes? Yeah, you know, well, to be honest, part of that is the publisher, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> when you write a book, you don't get the luxury of saying this is what the book is going to be titled. You know, I had input, but I like this because when you think about the concept of belonging, you know, belonging often is affiliated with your know, family or um, a group of people that you really identify with. And this, this concept of tribe uh, really resonated with that, that, that experience of you know, being a part of something that is meaningful. So one of the things I thought was interesting in your book, you have a lot of interesting statistics. Uh, you, had a, uh, you said 70% uh, of people don't like coming to work and you had stats on how uncivil behavior can affect an organization. Uh, did you write the book to turn those numbers around? You know, in part, uh, you know, when you do organizational consulting around change, oftentimes we run into you know, these kind of behaviors, uncivil behaviors, uh, bullying, or just outright resistance. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's uh, overt. And I'm a, when back in my banking days, I was uh, always, I was told by a, an executive, Sean, you're such an idealist. And she was right. So fast forward 30 years, here I am and I'm still an idealist. And I believe that work can be a positive experience. Unfortunately, that means addressing some of these negative behaviors uh, and as well as practices that are sometimes championed by the organization. I say that because one, I didn't write it just to kind of counter the, the uncivil behavior, but also to give people who do believe that work is something that can be meaningful, give them some really tangible tools to make that come to life. Yeah, they also have to love what they do. I mean, aside from the company, they have to like what they do. You did a survey asking employees what they wanted besides a paycheck. What did you learn? Well, uh, you know, this is something that has always been fascinating to me because there's been a, a kind of a statistic that's been around for decades that managers say employees want better pay and employees say they want something else other than better pay. And obviously everybody wants better pay, right? I mean, we have to live, we have to feed our families and, and have a, a life that we can do things that we enjoy. But when I asked the question, I was surprised to learn more specifics around what people want more than are beyond a paycheck. And the top thing was meaningful work. And I think that's probably largely influenced by millennials. I don't think it's a new concept, but I think it really became important. Um, more or maybe discuss more as millennials said, you know what, hey, yeah, I want a good paycheck and I want to have a good life, but I also want to do something that is, is meaningful to maybe society or meaningful to me. Um, but the other piece is all centered around either meaningful work or relationships. Relationships was the second most important thing that they wanted. You know, we, aside from today where we're, a lot of us are sheltering in place and working from home, we spend most of our time with our colleagues. Uh, 
in fact, some say it's a, it's a third of our day is where we're, we're working alongside people that aren't our family or friends. So when we spend that much time working and we work closely with people, you, if we're great high performers, you kick in butt during the day, we need to be working alongside people that we like, that we appreciate, or at least we say, hey, you know what? I can come into work, do great things. We, we work well together. We may not be buddies, but as long as the relationships are solid, that was the second most important thing that people said they want beyond a paycheck. I believe likability is important. When I would run different organizations, I'd have all the employees interview people. And no matter how talented they were, if they weren't comfortable with those people, they didn't feel like they could live with them on a day-to-day basis because you end up seeing the people you work with more than you see your family. Right, exactly, exactly. You know, to that point, the other thing that came up was, I just want to be useful. And I thought that was an interesting insight because, you know, when you think about going to work, I think some of us assume that, well, I got the job, obviously I, I was, you know, I was suitable for that role. But the idea that people want to be useful, I thought was um, an interesting insight in that just because we have a job and if you're leading people, doesn't mean that your team feels useful. You might be giving them things to do, right? Projects and assignments, but that doesn't mean they're being useful. They could just be, you know, uh, uh, retired in place, if you will, right? I show up, I do what I need to do and I leave. But to be useful means implies that you have to know what my strengths are, what my goals are uh, as, as my boss. And I have to be able to tell you that too. It's funny, uh, I one time came in second for a position and to be head of new ventures of this large organization. And I met the guy and, and befriended the guy who actually got the position. And he was getting 250,000 a year and $75,000 bonus. And he said it was the worst experience of his life because he never felt useful. Like all he did was attend meetings. And he said, I, I would, I just got to get out of here even for less money because I feel like I'm dying. So, you know, a lot of that plays into it, right? I, that's where, where money doesn't really matter if you don't feel like you're accomplishing anything. Money is a short-term motivator, right? If you think about, you know, get 75,000 signing bonus. Well, that money at some point, the excitement of it, you know, it doesn't stay long in our brains it's, it's, it, or our memories, right? We just adjust our lifestyle and we move along. And if we have horrible relationships that were paid really well, at some point those horrible relationships, and I can't even begin to tell you the number of consulting gigs I had where a big chunk of the work was around really fractured relationships, either with executives or with it between team members. Yeah, I remember years ago where the head of R&D at Galaxo didn't get along with the head of sales. They literally divided the building physically in half and drew a line down the middle of the building until the chairman and the board stepped in and said, this is crazy. We yeah. need everybody to be working on the same page. How does an organization create a sense of belonging? You talk about that in the book. Yeah, so that's really the, the, the gist of the book is uh, if, you're, if, if you want to create the sense of belonging, and obviously I'm going to say you should, um, organizationally speaking, there's actually two answers to your question, uh, Mark. One is organizationally speaking, the company needs to invest in their leaders' development. Uh, companies need to really look at how are they encouraging uh, performance, not just individual performance, right? So if we look at performance management, traditionally speaking, companies say, okay, I'm going to evaluate your performance on an annual basis, and then we'll give you some modest increase, and then you go about your way until next year. If you want belonging, you can't reinforce individual performance. You also have to reinforce team performance. So the performance management system also needs to look at team goals, team uh, recognition, as well as team, um, you know, bonuses, if you will. Uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be a bonus, but there's some kind of compensation as a result of the team performing really well. So that's at the organizational level. But with belonging, where it really truly comes into play and, or becomes a reality is the in the trenches leaders working closely with their teams. That's where the belonging is really going to come um, and become and take hold. 
how do individuals help new people feel welcome? Because I think that's always the thing. That's why I used to have people interview with everybody in the organization so they didn't feel like they had to resell themselves when they came in and people yeah. got a chance to know them. So for those, and many organizations don't run like that. They, somebody in HR, the boss interviews them, they get hired, and now, new, and now everybody has to get used to this person. What's the best way for a person, uh, for people to welcome a new person into the organization and for that new, new person to not have to show too much uh, and push too hard to be accepted? Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a couple of things on this. One, you know, in these days when we're all, when most of us are working remotely or there's some kind of hybrid work arrangement, that the answer to that question takes on a different meaning, right? So we'll, we'll say for those who are maybe working back in the office, you know, there are a couple of ways to help that employees can help uh, new team members feel uh, welcome. One is, and this sounds so simple, but it's missed so often. When the person comes into the office, have someone greet that person, right? They don't know what the heck they're, where to, where to go, right? It's overwhelming. Uh, so if it's, if it's an individual contributor, make sure that they, somebody's there to welcome them, make sure their desk is set up, their cube or whatever they're, wherever they're working. Some, those are simple things, but they signal a lot that, hey, we prepared in advance for you coming to join, join the team. I think the other pieces is, I think, making sure that that person has uh, kind of a, a mentor or a, you know, a, we'll say buddy um, that spends some time helping them acclimate to the organization. One of my favorite companies, it's a software development company in Ann Arbor uh, called Menlo Innovations. One of the things that they do is they, everybody works in pairs every single day and they rotate those pairs. And what's good about that is it's reinforcing a lot of different things. But if you think, if you take that idea of, okay, well, you're always working in pairs, have that concept apply to helping new people join the organization. Now, it's a little more difficult when we're working virtually, uh, but you could find virtual solutions to the physical approaches that you would normally take if people were in the office. I don't think this virtual is going to last forever. And I think, and, and I want to get your comments on this. I think a lot of people, my sister's uh, head of HR and she's been working at home and she really doesn't like it. And I, and when I talk to other people who've been working at home for a long time, now I've been working at home even when I ran organizations for most of my whole career and I like it. Yeah. Um, but a lot of people feel disconnected from people. So how long do you think this whole concept is going to uh, last and where are we going to fall out here? Well, I, I agree with you that the way where we have a predominant number of employees working remotely, that's going to change when don't know for sure. Um, I saw some stats and I think it was from Deloitte or McKinsey. I could, I could be mistaken um, that only 8% of the executives that were uh, surveyed said that they would remain 100% remote first. Um, I think where we're going to land is uh, more of a hybrid model where there are going to be more options available to employees, even those who work in the HQ area, uh, the headquarters area, um, because the, the genie's out of the bottle, right? You can't put it back in. There are employees who really like the improvement of their lifestyle by not having to drive into work. I, I live in San Francisco. My office is 20 minutes away on a typical day. It's an hour and 20 minutes to get there one way, one way. So think about I've gained over three hours of my day in terms of productivity. And that's a hard thing to give up, right? So I think what we're finding is, or what we're learning is that one, there's going to be this emergence of uh, head of remote work, um, that's really going to help companies mature their remote practices and really make it where, you know, there's more, um, a, a more kind of perf uh, mature, I was gonna say professional, mature business practice around helping people who are going to be remain remote, you know, have the right technology, the right Wi Fi, um, have the right setup of their home office. So I think we're going to find that it's going to be more of a, a hybrid versus 100% or not. 
I have to say back in 1996, I uh, ran a company uh, and a lot of the employees said, I'd like to work from home. And the founder was totally against it. And I said, well, let's give it a try. Uh, this is 1996. And I found that productivity went up 30%. And I was saying to the owner, I said, you know what? People are giving you more hours and not asking for any more money. And so that was a super benefit, Tim. But I wonder about the psychological side for a lot of people that they just can't handle the isolation. Well, we definitely have seen an increase in uh, mental health uh, concerns, whether it be loneliness, um, isolation, depression. Uh, and and, and you know, I work, I've been working remotely for, gosh, probably a couple decades now. It's not my favorite. I like to be around people. Um, but I've learned to adapt. I'll be honest, when COVID happened, I probably went through, gosh, probably a couple months where I was just blue for no reason. It would just come out of the, just randomly occur. Um, so it's, it is definitely uh, a concern that companies are gonna have to invest in to help employees manage their mental well-being. You know, the other side to this, though, as you mentioned, the productivity and, and productivity has increased. And that's you know, with the company where I work, Bluescape, we, you know, we did this uh, survey uh, of management and employees and both groups said, yes, I'm more productive. However, I'm also feeling lonely. I'm working longer hours and there's a productivity cliff that's coming. Right. I can I can work a lot. I can work <sighs> 10 hours a day. But if I'm starting to feel lonely, isolated, feeling blue, depressed, that's going, to in, that's going to influence that productivity. And companies need to get ahead of it now because it will be difficult for them you know, as, long, as this continues to go on for at least maybe another year. So a lot of companies might have full-time psychologists yep. as part of their team going forward. Do, do you see any interesting collaboration tools being developed which can complement the Zoom environment today? Well, I, I, I'll, uh, I'll always say the, the software that my company makes uh, is a virtual work, what we call a virtual work platform, which basically says you know, when you work, like right now, right, we're in a Zoom meeting. Um, imagine this meeting being plopped into uh, another um, uh, virtual workplace. It's all, it's all in the cloud. You can meet and we can be interacting with content within this workspace. Um, we can upload content, we can annotate on videos, we can annotate on documents while we're in the same meeting. So I think bringing all of these different tools that we're using virtually, Google Docs, Dropbox, whatever it happens to be, Zoom, WebEx, and putting it in one place, that's really where um, I think that's, that's the next wave. And there are a few, we have a few competitors, but obviously I think we do it best. Uh, and give them the name of the company again? Bluescape. Okay. All right. And maybe you'll just put it in the chat box uh, where they can go find that so they can test it out themselves. Yeah. Well, it's an enterprise solution. So we don't sell individual licenses. It's really more enterprise-wide. For large organizations, of course. How can new people help themselves fit in? We didn't finish the answer for that one. Yeah. So here's an important distinction. Fitting in versus belonging, they're not the same thing. And this isn't from my work. This is from the work that Brene Brown has done. So fitting in means I need to give up a part of my, I need to hide or cover a part of my, myself, whether it be my skills, whether it be, you know, maybe I'm a, a divorced parent, whatever it happens to be, I have to, I suppress something for the, the good of the team, right? We don't want that, right? We want people to bring themselves to work, right? So that starts to get into diversity, equity, inclusion topics. Belonging says, you know what, Mark? whatever your background is, whatever your beliefs are, uh, we have, belonging allows for us to have conversations, acknowledge our differences, um, that doesn't exclude people from being a part of the team, right? We don't want people to fit in. We want people to feel like they belong. And so when somebody new joins, what can they do to yeah. make that happen? Yeah, thank you for bringing the question back. Uh, yeah, so I think it's making sure that the team, each team member has time with that new person, that they get to know each other, uh, that they don't just get caught up in the meeting uh, minutia, that they are actually making, you know, 
like if you're the new person and we're all your team, this whole team that's here should make, there should be time spent on your calendar getting to know you, right? Um, taking you to meetings, helping you understand the, the business lingo. Obviously the other things like going to lunch and um, uh, like I said earlier, making sure your, your desk is set up, all those things are important. But really, I think when we talk about belonging, a big part of it is about performance. And so when team members, new team members join, we have to make sure we're spending the time with you to help you perform quickly. So like I said, making sure you understand the lingo that's said in the business, making sure you understand kind of the, the layout of the team and the, the customers that we support or the departments that we interact with, really making sure people have the opportunity to kind of understand how things get done around here. Are there industries that are more welcoming than others? And should people be aware of that when they're running those kinds of uh, businesses, you know, whether it be pharmaceutical or investment banking or software development? Because I think all of those uh, different skill sets for different types of industries make for different types of people. True. Um, you know, I've, I, that's a good question. I don't know the answer. Here's what I would say, though, Mark. Belonging is a human experience. Right? Working is a human experience. Obviously, culture shapes very much how we experience our work, right? I would say that belonging could be experienced in any, any industry. It might be more difficult in some of those that are maybe more traditional in the way that they approach their, inner, their relationship with employees. But I would say it can happen anywhere. Um, and it should because it's a human experience. And frankly, it's a human need. We all want it, we all need it, um, but it's up to that company's culture to do the things to help it become. But I think maybe in investment banking, you're working as a team. There might be five of you working as a team. So you have that collegiality. But if you're a software developer and you're just sitting in front of a computer pumping out code, it might be different. Maybe, I mean, if you, so, LinkedIn was one of the companies that we studied for work tribes. LinkedIn yes. is a software company, right? They've got engineers coding the back end of the of LinkedIn. And yeah. LinkedIn has a diversity, inclusion, and belonging team. So when I interviewed their global head of diversity, inclusion, and belonging, they have a very mature set of business practices around belonging. So I think it goes to, you know, there's an old saying that culture is a shadow of the CEO. So really, you know, I think the CEO sets the tone, doesn't necessarily fully say belonging is here or not, but the CEO really can say, set the tone to make it happen, allow it to happen or for it to not. Uh, are there different strategies based on gender, age and position? And gender means so many different things today than it meant when you and I probably started being in business. So, and especially with the Me Too movement and all the things that we've seen socially, is it, are there different strategies based on all these different things? Well, you know, ideally I'd say no, right? But I think the fact is uh, there's, a, there's a kind of a, a, an awakening that's happening right now to, you know, Black Lives Matter and, and how you know, I'll put, I'll just, I'll just make this about my own experience. I don't want to speculate across the board, but you know, I'm, I'm white and I'm a male, right? So I theoretically, historically have had more privilege over say a black man, right? Who might be my peer. And so belonging probably doesn't happen as easily for a black person as it does say for me, because it's been, there's institutional, you know, biases there. So I think what we have to be careful about is to tailor how we go about creating belonging based on race, because then we start to introduce a lot of bias as well as it just becomes so unwieldy. You gotta remember belonging is something we all want, right? It doesn't matter your age, your race, your socioeconomic status. We all want to feel like we are valued, wanted and welcomed. That being said, if I would be naive to say companies need to look at belonging 
and, and, and evaluate, does that happen equitably across the organization? Well, would you have different strategies? Because, you know, when you bring somebody older, one time brought in a guy, I was 30 and I was the CEO and he was 54, 57. And I kind of felt like the strategy of inclusion with him was going to be different than if I brought somebody else in my age. So is there thoughts or, or how you, you know, talk to your clients about the thinking around uh, age and uh, even position? You know, you, when somebody becomes your boss, they bring in a manager, that's, di that's a different set of circumstances and the relationship is different than bringing another colleague. So yeah. how, how, do you make, how do you make those people fit in and do you have to think about specific strategy based on age and position? Uh, I think, no, I don't think okay. so. I think you do need to have a very clear how we create the sense of belonging, right? You're going to be championing it. Um, so I could actually, I guess I would say if it's at the individual level, the middle of the organization, yeah, you're going to spend more time helping people feel acclimated because they're the ones that are impacted by what upper management is doing. Um, I think you would definitely want to have more of a um, kind of a, if you are a senior leader in an organization, here are our expectations around creating a sense of belonging, right? We're going to acclimate you to how we do this um, here in the organization, whether that be through onboarding, whether that be through hiring, whether that be through performance management. So I think, yes, there would be some different tactics based on the level, but ultimately the goal is everyone contributes to it and experiences the sense of belonging. So in the book, you write about diversity, but you're not talking about the kind of diversity that mostly we're hearing in the news today. So what are you talking about when you talk about diversity in an organization? Yeah, so diversity is definitely um, you know, race, gender, sexual orientation. But the other piece that I, I write about is uh, cognitive diversity, right? So when we think about different ways of thinking, you take an engineer, say, um, and versus uh, a, um, you know, a an HR uh, business partner who is dealing with human uh, uh, needs and interactions, um, they think differently, right? So when you have teams, you want cognitively different, you want people to think cognitively different. I'm not saying that very clearly. Mm -hmm. You want people to think differently, right? You don't want all of the same type of thinkers on a team. Um, and there's some definite great research that Harvard Business Review has put out around the different types of thinkers, um, but that's definitely an important element to a team's performance is having diverse sets of problem solvers, if you will, based on how they think and approach uh, problems and projects. Yeah, uh, you mentioned here, uh, what's your take on Warren Buffett's hire well, manage little? What does he mean by that? Yeah, I love, well, I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett um, and his leadership and management beliefs. You know, hire well, manage little really says, you need to take your time when you're hiring someone, right? You wanna make sure, like when I was hired for Bluescape, I had 12 interviews and probably 30 hours total. You know, that's an example of you just really wanna make sure this person is a fit for what the company is needing to accomplish strategically. Um, and once you can vet that person as best as you possibly can, you should feel so good about, yes, this is the right person with the right skill sets, with the right mindset, that I don't have to worry about managing Sean on a day-to-day -day basis. We hire him, we vetted him thoroughly, go, right? Take, go do what we asked you to, what we hired you to do. But what, what percentage of people who are hired going through all that process and it still doesn't work out, you know, during that 60-day preparation? probation period. Do you know what that is and, and why after all that work put in, it still doesn't. And I think that happens with every field. You see in sports, people get drafted in the first, second round in football and they wash out. Um, you see CEOs, so many companies, uh, major Fortune 500s who have switched CEOs three, four times in one year. 
I mean, that's barely enough time for them to find the parking lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think there's an interesting, you know, when you hire people, not everybody knows how to interview, right? There could be so many biases in the way the questions are asked when asking the person that make it sound like the person is the best thing since sliced bread, right? Um, so I don't know what the numbers are in terms of hires versus their, you know, their fit in the end. Um, but really what we're talking about is poor, uh, a, a, they don't, the company doesn't have a good hiring set of practices. They're not equipping the workforce to know how to interview well. They don't know how to, you know, ask questions that don't lead a person to give the best answer. Um, or they ask questions that are biased. Um, so really it boils down to their, their hiring practices and whether or not they've got a mature one and is the workforce ready? Or does the workforce know how to actually interview? What are questions that, I'm not worried about the legality of this, but are questions- As a lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and why I'm saying this is there are, there are questions that uh, you might ask that are gonna give you the answer you wanted anyway, what kinds of questions should you avoid asking that are almost self-fulfilling prophecies of you know, making uh, not the right choice here? Yeah, so you, the, the big, big picture answer is you wanna ask behavior-based questions, right? So you, know, not, you don't wanna say, you know, ha have you ever had to uh, deal with uh, a colleague you didn't like. Sure, yeah, I have. Rather than asking a question like that, you ask a behavior-based question. Tell me a time how you overcame a conflict with a colleague, right? You want to evaluate their thinking. You want to understand yes. how they think about what it is you're asking them. Um, can, you, can you have a successful culture without financial success or conversely, can you have financial successes succeed for the long term in a negative atmosphere? Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Which is kind of sad. Um, I mean, I can tell you one of the, uh, one of the consulting engagements that I had, um, the team was being basically dominated by a narcissistic bully. Um, the team produced, right? They weren't doing great, but they, they were doing well enough for the organization to say, yeah. So that's just one little microcosm. Expand that out across the organization. There are plenty of dysfunctional companies out there that are profitable. Yeah. Even so, dysfunctional countries that are succeeding no matter what. Right. Uh, until the internet's arrival, uh, arrivals, few companies expected employees to work a minimum of 50 hours a week and providing employees with work-life balance possible with global competition? Is that possible? I mean, I think, you know, when I talk to uh, my daughter and her generation, my daughter is going to be turning 30 and I believe she's listening in today. Is, uh, I think that's the biggest thing because they see their parents have been, you know, especially I'm an entrepreneur working, you know, 10 hours a day would be a vacation, you know, right. hours a day or more, six days a week. Um, I don't think that's the life that they want nor should they, right? I think, um, so first of all, startup is definitely different than say an enterprise. Um, you know, cause in a startup you're hustling to, to, to get the product out, right? You're hustling to mature the product. Maybe you're wanting to be acquired or maybe an IPO, whatever it happens to be. The reality is this, when we work 10 plus hours a day, 80 hours a week, whatever that number is, there is an effect on our well-being, right? There's also, it also influences our ability to sleep, which influences our ability to think, which influences the effectiveness of our work. So this mindset that has come from, you know, previous generations that, you know, work long, you know, you'll be rewarded, that went out the door probably two decades ago, right? However, there's still this rugged, you know, I'm just gonna work really hard because that's kind of what we think about, that's how we think about it here in America. Um, but the reality is just because you're working longer hours doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna be as effective. Uh, there's a term, I can't remember the exact name, but it's like work fatigue, meaning 
when you leave the office, do you have an opportunity to decompress from the day? With our phones and, and our, our laptops, you know, we can easily just be pulled into work by a ding, right? Notification and off and we're run, and we're working. We need to be able to have the time to decompress, spend time with our family, spend time with our friends, spend time alone. I mean, if we don't get that, you know, I just recently wrote an article for an HR blog that there's this productivity cliff. I think I mentioned this earlier. We, we are working so long and it's starting to affect our, our well-being that it's going to, there are adverse effects that are already happening for people. Um, and companies really, executives really need to take on how do we, how do we signal to the organization that, yeah, working long hours, yes, it's gonna happen, right? But it doesn't need to be every day, five days a week, six days a week, whatever it happens to be. Now it's hard, it's more difficult when you're an entrepreneur or a startup because you know, this time is, you don't have much of it and in terms of trying to get the business off the ground. But I think it's interesting. I read a venture capitalist, an old school venture capitalist said that he was surprised when he was interviewing different young entrepreneurs, let's say under the age of 35, that said to him, if you're expecting to call me on Saturday and Sunday, don't bother because I'm not doing that. And my people aren't doing that. And I think there's been this big revolt, um, a big pushback saying, I expect to have my Saturday and Sundays uh, to myself, I'm not going to be doing this thing where I'm working seven days a week and my relationship to my significant other, my kids is really important. How are companies dealing with that now? Because I think the old school guys are really surprised and thinking the younger people are soft, but maybe they're smarter. Well, so I've actually been interviewing executives uh, over the past, gosh, what are we, this is September? Uh, since July. And my whole focus was how are they guiding their organization through COVID? And inevitably the conversation turns to well-being. Uh, the, our CEO at Bluescape, so late we just had Labor Day here in America, um, he gave everybody Friday before Labor Day weekend um, that day off as a wellness day, saying don't check, don't check your emails, don't respond to notifications, if you have to do it, but quickly do so, so that you can enjoy that time off. Um, the, the CEO, he's the former CEO now of Quest uh, Nutrition. Uh, he's moved on to a different company. When they were starting to hear complaints from the workforce around just working long hours and, uh, and people, you know, you know, parents feeling stressed out because they're homeschooling and at the same time trying to work and they're just feeling the, the, the overwhelming uh, burden of that, uh, they also started giving people days off or making sure that they um, stop sending emails after six o'clock. You know, those, are, those, are, those are hard to do, but when the CEO says, this is what we're gonna do, then it becomes more of a practical solution rather than an idealistic, oh, that, that'd be nice, but that's never gonna happen. I used to have family first. So I used to tell my employees, if your kids are playing ball, I expect you to be at the game, get it done. You know what you got to do, but don't miss the opportunity because it never comes back. How large do you think the tribe word applies to? Does it scale? And if so, what are the techniques to apply that at scale? Mark, this is such a good question because my research partner and I, we struggled with this question. So when we did all the data, uh, we did all the interviews, did all of the analysis of it, um, uh, Bruce is his name. Bruce said, Sean, does this scale? How does this you know, spread? And the, the answer wasn't super clear because what we're talking about is the biggest influence on belonging is at, at the team level is, there, is the team's immediate boss. Um, in fact, 70% of the experience of work is based on the boss, right? And that's, that probably isn't a surprise because we hear people say, well, people, people leave the boss, not the organization, right? So to scale it, what, you, what companies really need to do is invest in 
the foundational skills of their leaders. And by foundational skills, that's my word for the soft skills, those skills like empathy and um, you know, having, giving effective feedback that can be constructive. Those are all pieces that are inputs to this experience of belonging. Belonging isn't something that the boss creates. Belonging is something the boss influences. And so if you want to scale it, companies really need to be very strategic in how they hire their leaders and how they develop their leaders. And the development of their leaders is always ongoing. Because frankly, you know, as we move to a more collaborative work arrangement, which has been happening over the past two decades, you know, people are working closer together on projects more than ever before. And those dynamics, those interactions are all fueled by our ability to relate, to communicate. So it's really in the leadership ranks is where that is going to scale. Um, you know, and it doesn't take a lot of money to do that. Give some examples. Well, you think about, so when we think about culture, um, you know, there's all of these investments that uh, are around, oh, we're going to create a, a, a beer tap area. You know, I went to one company. The gimmicks. Huh? The gimmicks. The gimmicks, yeah. So companies invest in all those gimmicks, but that doesn't really create belonging. It doesn't really shape the culture the way that you think it would, right? So those kind of investments, well, I think they add a little bit, really, but they cost a lot, right? You've got to maintain that. You've got to, in some cases, you've got to redo part of your office space to accommodate uh, a, you know, a, a cereal bar or, you know, uh, you know, beer taps, whatever it happens to be, a place for the foosball or whatever. Um, but investing in leadership development, yes, it's an investment, but it's not a huge investment. Uh, one of the people writes here, I've seen studies and personally believe that at a point, working long hours becomes counterproductive. Many people spend time at work because it's expected, not because it's more productive. Agree or disagree? I agree, 100%, 100%. Yeah, I think people wanna be just seen. Well, uh, you know, I, I think also in this day and age where we're all working remotely, there's a, a I wrote an article recently on uh, uh, get, feeling guilty working remotely. You know, it's like, some people, and they typically tend to be high performers, are worried that I don't want my boss to think that I'm slacking off. So I'm going to be online and I'm going to be, you know, really working long hours. I'm going to get my stuff in early. And, and that guilt propels this unhealthy behavior, behaviors that ultimately just kind of create more anxiety, feelings of over, feeling overwhelmed. Um, it's a slippery slope. I mean, there's a reason why Ariana Huffington, arguably one of the most successful businesswomen here in recent America, I mean, she wrote a book on sleep because she was working these long hours and she, she collapsed, physically collapsed. That's what we all face. Um, in the book, you write about human chemistry and how, how much does that impact a successful work environment? Yeah, so human chemistry is, it's not just a, a metaphor, but it's, there's truly, there are, uh, uh, oxytocin is released when we interact with people um, that we enjoy working with. And that helps create that chemistry of, uh, of us being able to work together. Um, you know, and it's hard to, it's hard to really use that as a tangible business practice, but we want to make sure that when we're hiring people, we're, we're doing it in a way that allows for that chemistry to, um, you know, benefit the team. What, what do you think of these work, uh, open work environments that are now passe, but SEI in the Philadelphia area was the first and they were featured on the nightly news. I, I'm not an advocate of this because I, I was a journalist and newsrooms were always open. There was no, uh, just desk after desk after desk. And I think in the financial field, trading desks were also open. And I found that uh, you were less productive because not only the noise, but the interruptions, you just couldn't focus on things. So what do you think looking back now, are those open environments successful or now people going back because of COVID, 
to everybody's going to have their own office and not just cubicle, but things that are going to be closed in. So what's your take on that? Um, I think it's, it's, uh, it's a hybrid. I think the smarter organizations who have been playing with this um, recognize that you need different spaces for the different types of work that people do. So, you know, you could have an open work environment. However, you know, if people need to do some deep, deep thinking, some deep work, you need to have you know, spaces to where people can do that, where they're uninterrupted, right? So the office, physical office layout really is, you know, an important component to helping people be productive, helping people, different types of thinkers think in environments that work for them. You know, I have ADD, so working in an open environment, I have to put on headphones so I to, to, to right. drown out, you know, the distractions, even though I like people around me, I don't necessarily want them talking to me. I just like the energy of people moving around. Um, so I think the smarter organizations are saying we need to create different spaces for different types of work. Um, what happens to good leaders and organizations exist that make people want to work even harder? They're relatable, bottom line. You said earlier, Mark, um, you know, family first, right? Right, always. You, if, and, and I get the sense that you truly believe that. Oh, yeah. When you're working with your team, you yep. reinforce that. You reinforce that, right? Um, great leaders will also have hard conversations. Like if I'm reporting to you, Mark, and you're seeing me work long hours, but you're also starting to see my work quality you know, kind of you know, go down, great leaders will say, hey, Sean, let's talk. And you're not making me feel bad, but you're saying, hey, I'm worried. I'm seeing you work long hours and you typically do really great work, but right now I'm not seeing that. So what's going on, right? It's be curious, not critical. I think great leaders are relatable. They want to connect with their employees and help them be successful. And that means sometimes saying, I'm out, something's off. I actually started in one of the organizations I ran. I said, um, I gave them four weeks vacation. Like people on the board thought it was nuts. But I said, I want you to take a week off a quarter. And, and some people said, I can't take a week. I said, I want you to take a week off a quarter so you can recharge your batteries. So you will be running at optimum all year round. Yeah. If you take a week off and I want you to take the week off with no laptop, no access whatsoever, because otherwise it defeats the purpose. Totally. When I wrote my first book, The Optimistic Workplace, one of the companies I featured was Bamboo HR, which at the time was an a HR tech startup company. They've, I, I think they've since moved out of the startup uh, phase. But they had an anti-workaholic policy, which went like this. If you continually work 40 hour, more than 40 hours a week, you, that is grounds for termination. Because their belief was, if you can't get your work done in 40 hours, we're not doing something to support you. And there's something you're not doing to help yourself. So we're going to talk about this and we're going to help you work through this because 40 hours is more than enough time for you to do what we hired you to do. And if you aren't doing it, well, then you now not only jeopardize your performance, but your team's performance. See, that's I think, that, I think the theory that makes perfect sense. I mean, for, for some people like myself, I always feel like there's one more thing, one more thing, one more thing that I could be doing. And so, but, if the organization understands that they can make a little bit of leeway for people, but overall, that's if it's better for the organization if you do take your vacation and you do take time for yourself and that you um, spend time with your family. Balance is everything, right? Uh, everything in moderation, including work. It seems the diverse team, different personality types, backgrounds, and the good chemistry comments are counter to each other. How do you deal with that? Uh, ask me that question again. It seems a diverse team, different personality types, backgrounds, and the good chemistry comments are counter to each other. How do you deal with that? So are you talking about kind of conflict that happens from those differences? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, frankly, I hope that happens, right? Because you know, <laughs> being human is messy. And Mark, I'm going to do something that's going to just make, it's going to irritate you, right? So we need to have those, we need to expect that there's going to be conflict. However, where we need to focus is helping 
the team and the team members know how to handle those conflicts. Um, if there isn't a conflict, frankly, when my team, if everybody's getting along and everybody's agreeing and there's, I'm like, okay, something's off here because we need to have differences. I want my team members to be outspoken, but they need to be outspoken in a professional constructive way, right? Not a critical way where they're attacking the person. No tolerance for that, right? That creates toxic interactions and culture. But I want open disagreement. I want open um, debate, but there better be an outcome. Just to debate because we're debating? No, that's not healthy. So we have to really basically coach people on how to, it's okay to have differences. Like I just, I don't always agree with my CEO. I don't always agree with my boss and that's okay. Right. Because I know how to do that in a constructive way. And sometimes they're going to slap me, put me in my place and I'm okay. Okay. got it. Um, but we have to, we have to foster this willingness to disagree. If we don't, we get, we basically create a, a, a country club effect, right? Hey, I love coming here. It's great. Everybody gets along, but really. It's funny you should say that because I once fired a person for not disagreeing. I oh, really? the, the only reason I did that is because I said, it, we had a train wreck. And I said, I, and they knew that this train wreck was happening because they said, after all, I thought that wasn't gonna work. I said, all right, you're fired. Why? Because you didn't tell us because you saw the train wreck coming. I said, how many different times do you have to ask that? And I think you see that a lot also when you're teaching at universities and you tell the students, tell me if there's something I'm not giving you. And I see that you know, happen everywhere. And you keep asking and asking, and then at the end of the day, you get a few people who are unhappy. You wonder, oh my God, I gave you every opportunity. But I think at the end of the day, the boss has to work really hard for people to trust them in order to take that step forward um, to give that, don't you think? Yeah, you know, high-performing teams have no tolerance for um, BS. They have no tolerance for team members who aren't willing to you know, step aside and say, wait, time out, there's something not right here, right? Because we're moving so fast, because we're assuming that everybody is doing their part, the that moment when somebody isn't, that's to your point, that's when the training starts to happen, right? So we need to be having the, these difficult conversations. We need to be comfortable to say, yeah, I can do this. Um, the CEO, um, Rich Sheridan for um, Menlo Innovations, one of his, what he tells me says, Sean, one of my most important responsibilities is to pump out fear in the culture. I don't want people to be afraid to come to me and say, hey, Rich, I don't understand this, or I think there might be a better way to approach this. Can we talk about it, right? When we're fearful, we're fearful because something happened where Maybe you told me I should speak up and I spoke up and I, there was some retaliation, right? So this, the, the, the leaders need to be very mindful about what we say and are, is there evidence and proof that we're, that, that's happening? That's right. You live it. I mean, look at Ray Dalio who wrote the book Principles and he runs what's the big private equity firm. And he's already been through six CEOs since he stepped back and now he's back again as CEO and he talks about this culture of honesty, but I'm not so sure that they're living it because they have two women who don't think they're being paid, one who's the former CEO suing them. So even though they've had this great performance, maybe they live at 80% of the time, but there's a chunk of it, they're clearly not living it. Yeah, well, and that starts getting into what I think is, I'm so, such an important conversation, which is around equity and pay for women versus men, right? I mean, there's no, it makes no sense yeah. that there would be in, inequities, right? We, we sh and companies who've been getting away with it, maybe because they haven't been focusing on it, now there's a spotlight on it and it's like, oh, we've got a problem here. Um, and that's- I wonder if that's generational too, because I think that people, let's say under 60 today, that women have to get paid the same because it's not like you can say a man should get paid more because he's the sole breadwinner, which is what always was the excuse before. But if a woman's doing the same job, same title, same everything, I can't see how, I never can believe it when you hear it. What do you think of leaders who play employees off against each other 
and do they succeed? Because I've known CEOs who like to, to do that. What do you think about that? That's, is that short-term success? What do you think of that for organizations to succeed for the long-term? Um, I don't think that, I mean, the, the company could succeed. I think it just creates a toxic culture, right? Um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's cruel to play employees off of one another. I mean, you're playing games and I'm sorry, uh, if you're running a business, you've got a lot on your mind to, to create games that cause people to, you know, underperform. That's just stupid. I think the best performers and smartest people leave those organizations. You're left with people who just can't get chop anywhere else yep. before you know it. You're heading sound. 100% agree. What type of competition then is healthy for an organization? Yeah, so um, I think the, the right kind of competition, competition is um, not focused on individuals, but uh, outcomes. So if we are saying, all right, you know, we need to be able to come up with the next best, um, you know, you take hackathons, for example, right? That's a competition. That's a healthy competition for the most part. Um, it's to see who can come up with the best solution for problems that are in a software, um, in, in the software. Uh, the, the key to focus on is don't make it personal, right? I'm not going to put, I'm not going to make the competition about you and me or this team and that team, but it's about the outcome that we're trying to accomplish. And that competition needs to reinforce teamwork. It's not about the rugged individual who's going to come in and save the day. Um, but it's about how that team works together to get to that best outcome. Uh, two more questions for you. With so many organizations having their employees work from home, you talk about this in your book. How does an organization monitor this without employees feeling like adolescents? Uh, I think you said it earlier, it's trust, right? Um, I think, you know, there are, unfortunately, there are companies who employ or deploy um, spying software. To right. Spy. I'm, how much screen time has Sean put in today? Um, I, if you, if, if that's going to happen, you're going to, to your point just a moment ago, Mark, you're not going to get the best talent because they're not going to tolerate that. Right. Um, it's just, it's not, there's just, it, there's no outcome from that. That's good. It destroys trust. So my last question to you is what CEOs have you interviewed or observed that you're really impressed with and they've built long-term uh, success. And I think it, and it could be different ways because if you look in sports, Bill Belichick is kind of a cold individual, but he's built this amazing track record of success. And I'm forgetting the manager of the, of the um, Atlanta Braves who won 18 straight division titles, but was a very upbeat personality that people just like being around and so forth. So in the business world, what have you observed? So one of my favorite CEOs is uh, Bob Chapman from um, uh, Barry Waymiller. So Barry Waymiller is a global manufacturing organization, privately owned. Um, what I love about what, Bear, what uh, Bob does, and, and I've interviewed Bob, I can't even begin to tell you how many different times, had lots of delightful conversations with the man. He takes to heart that every employee that works for Barry Way Miller, it is his responsibility to make sure that they have what they need to be successful. So that could be, you know, and, and that sounds very generic and, and, and probably not giving him the, the best due credit, but he believes that leaders are responsible for the health and wellness and, and, and success of their employees. Um, and he's designed an organization around that very philosophy. He has what he calls truly human leadership. That's what his, um, approaches. Um, so you're looking at the person, not the employee, right? Like, you know, you have a life outside of coming to work here and we're going to make sure that you can enjoy that life as well as come here and do great work. Um, uh, uh, our, uh, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on his last name, Ari from Zingerman's, which is again in Ann Arbor, um, has built an amazing organization around, um, you know, food. And uh, one of the things that they do is they practice open, open book financing, right? Every employee gets sent, learns the financing, 
how, how the company is doing financially and how their team contributes to that, right? So there's these themes of ownership, right? Like I'm now seeing what happens with this work that I'm doing and the output of that. And I think that helps people feel like you trust me, you, you're treating me like an adult, not as, you know, somebody who is unaware of things beyond what my scope of work is. Well, uh, by the way, it was Bobby Cox, the manager of the Braves that I was referring to. I want to thank you so much. I hope people will take the time to read your book, Work Tribes, again, uh, for everybody to see the book. I uh, wish you continued success, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thanks, Mark, for having me on here. I enjoyed it. Have a great rest of your day. Everybody have a safe rest of your day. Take care.